Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're pressing on in our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, he's going to be in Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 21, which covers the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel. Just a reminder, there's still time to pick up a copy of Theopolitan Liturgy by Peter Lightheart during this Christmas season. This is the latest from Theopolis Books in the Theopolis Fundamental series, and will give you a fantastic picture of our vision for liturgy. With that, we hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this episode. And here is James Jordan in Genesis chapter 35, discussing the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. We're in Genesis 35, and we come now to the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. And that's in verses 16 to 20. They departed from Bethel, the house of God, and when there was still a stretch of land to come to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she had a very hard birthing. And it came to pass, when her birthing was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for this one too is the son for you. You are having another son. It came to pass as her life was slipping away, for she was dying. That she called his name Ben-Oni, which he has as son of my woe. His father called him Benjamin, son of the right hand. So Rachel died, and she was buried along the way to Ephrath, and that is now Bethlehem. Yaakov set up a standing pillar over her burial place, and that is Rachel's burial pillar of today. Once again, if you look back, you'll see that the parallel is E in this section here. God came to Rebekah and told her that she was going to have two sons. The sons were fighting in her womb. It was causing her much distress. She said, what's going on here? If this is so, why am I this way? Is the way our Bible translates it. Causing her a lot of pain, and then the sons come. Here... But the same parallel takes place. God comes to Bethel and makes these promises and says that kings are going to come from him. And then this king is born, Benjamin, and the woman also suffers and her suffering is intensified to the point where she dies in this situation. And in the other way of outlining the passage and making things parallel, and here is the two D sections that are parallel. The whole story of Rebecca and her son receiving Isaac and combining the sons together in the meal and all the rest of it, and the fact that she says she feels death as Jacob leaves. She says, what good is my life? I might as well die. That comes up a number of times in that passage. You'll remember we talked about it at the time. Her own death, hinting that somehow or other her death has something to do with Jacob's life. And here we have Rachel and her son and her death, which happens as she gives birth. So... We have two mothers who are dying for the sake of their children in these two passages. So they are conceptually parallel, and it would be worth reflecting on that in more detail, but we're not going to because there's enough here without it. One thing I do want to point out here in verse 16, it says they departed from Bethel, and then they were coming to Ephrath. They had not come to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem, yet. Eventually we're going to come to Mamre, which is Hebron. We're moving south here from Salem, Shechem, to 
this area of Bethel and then to Bethlehem, then to Hebron. All of this is basically on the way to Egypt and it's from Hebron that we'll eventually move to Egypt in a few years. Not too many years distant, I guess, because Jacob's been there a number of years. And perhaps five years from now, we'll be moving on down to Egypt. Now, I just want to point out to you that what happens here starts something moving that continues through the rest of the Bible. We're told explicitly that Ephrath is Bethlehem, verse 19. Ephrath, that is now Bethlehem. And she dies on the way there in a place near there. So I want to just do a symbolic little map here. If this is Bethlehem, and we're on the way there, and we're here. So, a place that's on the way to Bethlehem, near to Bethlehem, is where this happens. Now, one would want to ask the question. If they're not at Bethlehem, then why does it tell us twice that they were on the way there, that they were getting near there? There was a stretch of land to come to Ephrath, and this happened. She dies, and she was buried along the way to Ephrath, which is now Bethlehem, which is almost a climactic statement here. Why tell us this stuff? Why not just say as they journeyed southward? Could easily have said that. As they moved on, Rachel's labor pains came upon her, and she died, and she was buried, and they moved on. It doesn't say at Bethlehem, it's just on the way. We're not even told a precise site. Of course, there is a stone put up, so there is Rachel's grave, it is a precise site. But why insist twice on associating it with Bethlehem? Why would that be? What is starting up here that is carried forward later on in the Bible? I've already given you the answer, but you may not remember well, what's new in the promise we've just heard is that kings are going to come. You and I know from the rest of the Bible that Bethlehem is where the king is born. That's not known yet, but it's known later on. And I submit to you that the Bible is written this way, talking about Bethlehem here when we're not actually at Bethlehem, just on the way to it, because of the association of Bethlehem with the king. There's another city that's associated with the king as well, and that's Gibeah. And the fact is that Gibeah is near Bethlehem. Gibeah is near Bethlehem, and Gibeah is, of course, a Benjamite city, and Saul came from there. And Benjamin is who is being born here. Bethlehem is a Judah city. David comes from there. The first king is Saul and then from Gibeah, and then the second is Bethlehem. Now, I don't know any way, I didn't even look at the map, because I don't think it makes any difference. These two cities are near to each other. The first king is from Gibeah, the second is from Bethlehem. Saul becomes king on the way to Bethlehem. He's the king that comes first, He's from Benjamin. And David is the king that comes second, and he's from Judah. We arrive at Bethlehem with David. We are on the way to Bethlehem with Benjamin and Saul. 
these things are associated, and they begin to be associated here and in there, carried forward as the Bible continues. Now, we have just been told that kings will come from Jacob, Israel, whose name is given as Israel, and so now we have a nation. Kings will come out from you. David comes from Bethlehem and Saul from Gibeah. And in Gibeah, we have a Levite from Bethlehem who offers his wife to be raped and killed, and that's in Judges 19. Say a word about Gibeah and then some words about Bethlehem. But they're linked together here again. Well, they're linked here as we move toward the kingdom period. Judges 19, it came a pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. There was a certain Levite remaining in the remote country, part of the hill country of Ephraim, who took a wife, a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. His concubine played the harlot against him, and she went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, and she was there. So then the Levite goes, and he spends time with her in Bethlehem, and he tells her he still loves her in spite of her adultery, and the father-in-law sends them off, and they leave Bethlehem, and they come to a place that is near Jerusalem, verse 10. The man was not willing to spend the night again with his father-in-law, so he leaves Bethlehem. He arises and departs and comes to a place opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Let's spend the night in the city of the Jebusites. The master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. So come, let us approach one of those places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. You may remember from later passages that there is the great weeping in Ramah, and what does it say? Rachel weeping for her children. Ramah is where Rachel died. Ramah is right next to Gibeah. Let's do the geography here. We can expand it just a bit. This is Bethlehem. This is the south of Jerusalem, which is Jebus here. And the hill country of Ephraim is to the north. Remember, Ephraim is the northern kingdom, Judah is the southern kingdom. So Judah is down here, Benjamin is actually in between Judah and Ephraim. So this man, he's down in Bethlehem, that's where he is, picking up his wife, and he starts heading north to Ephraim, back to where he's the pastor of the local synagogue. On the way, it's dark and they come by Jebus or Jerusalem, which hasn't become Jerusalem yet. They say, well, let's spend the night there. He says, no, no, we'll either spend the night in Ramah or Gibeah. So they're right here near Jerusalem on the way north. So that's the same geography we had before. I suggested as we move south, we move past Gibeah on our way to Bethlehem, since Ramah is a twin city with Gibeah, that's exactly right. So where is Benjamin born? And where does he die? Where does Rachel die? It's someplace right near Gibeah on the way south to Bethlehem. This man's making a trek in the opposite direction. As we move south, Rachel is buried at Ramah, and that's on the way to Bethlehem, and Ramah is right where Gibeah is. Gibeah is where Saul is from. Gibeah is a Benjamite city. Kings will come from you, and that starts right here on the way to Bethlehem. A king will come from Bethlehem, 
and a king will also come from a place that's on the way to Bethlehem, namely Gibeah or Ramah. Well, just to remind you of the rest of this story here, it, as they passed along, the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So they went into Gibeah, and they sat in the open square of the city, and nobody took a man. And then we just kind of like the two angels who come to visit Lot. Finally, this man takes them in and protects them because he says there's a bunch of sons of Belial there. You don't want to stay out in the street. And sure enough, the sons of Belial come around, and they say, we want to have homosexual relationships with the man. And the Levite, and this is his great sin, he kicks his concubine out, and they have their way with her all night long, and she dies in the morning. He does not die for her. He lets her die for him. So he's not a good Levite. He's certainly not displaying the kind of thing Levites are supposed to display. And that's why there's so much trouble in the period of the judges, because the Levites aren't doing their job. And that's the theme and the theology here. But we see here that a woman is killed along the way. Essentially, this Levite kills his wife. He could have gone out and offered himself for her. It would not have been pleasant, but it would have been better than throwing his wife out. Jesus wouldn't do that to us. And see, Benjamin, when he's born, he's essentially the agent of death to his mother. So there's something I think carried forward here in that the bride, the nation, is exposed to risk by these kings. When the kings come, it's dangerous. We come to these kingly cities, and they're not very good places, as we'll see just in a moment later. Now, that's Gibeah, and that's Bethlehem together. A Bethlehemite Levite shows us that he's not much good. He's willing to have his wife abused rather than take the abuse himself. He's not exactly an example of what Jesus is supposed to be or what the Levites were supposed to be. And he's from Bethlehem, so Gibeah is a terrible place. And Bethlehem doesn't look like a very good place either. They're both fairly rotten places from what we can tell. Now this story goes on and it tells us about how the city of Gibeah was burned to the ground. And then at the end in chapter 21, there was only 600 men left of the entire tribe of Benjamin. And then wives are gotten for them and there's a resurrection that takes place at the end of the book of Judges. And Saul comes from this a couple of centuries later. Although this is the last story in Judges, chronologically it happens early in the period. Saul comes from this city of Gibeah a couple of centuries later, after this kind of death and resurrection situation. It's full judgment that comes upon the town of Gibeah. I want to give you a progression here. Gibeah, sin, horrible sin, destruction, resurrection, and then the king comes. The resurrection from Judges 21, where they get these wives, wives are given to them. Now Bethlehem, is, this is bad a place. Everything that comes out of Bethlehem seems to be pretty bad. The previous story in Judges, Judges 17 and 18, also happens early in the period. Once again, it says we have something in the hill country of Ephraim, so the Ephraimites are a problem. But this man Micah and his mother build a counterfeit tabernacle, a house of God back in the days when there was no king in Israel. And then we read in verse 7, there was a young man, basically that means a deacon. Like when the young men came out and made fun of Elisha. You know that story, Elisha and the two bears? It says the young men came out and said, go up bald head and made fun of him. People say that's children. 
it's not children. The word Naar means deacon. Now this was in the city of Bethel, which at that time had one of the two golden calves in it, and these were the servants of the golden calf, the men who offered the sacrifices there, and that's what the young men were who came out and made fun of Elisha. It's got absolutely nothing to do with little kids. There aren't any little kids in the passage. And the same thing is here. Young man, here this means deacon, somebody who works, who is a Levite, and we're told that right away. There was a deacon from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite. And he was staying there, and he got tired of being in Bethlehem. He departed from the city from Bethlehem in Judah, looking for a place, looking to make more money in a better church. And he gets to Micah, and this bad Micah here and his mother, and he becomes the priest of their little counterfeit tabernacle. So Bethlehem is issuing forth two bad Levites. We've got two bad Levites coming out of Bethlehem. This one originates in Bethlehem. And he's actually the grandson of Moses. We're told this explicitly to show us just how bad things had become. Verse 30 of Judges 18. The sons of Dan set up for themselves graven image. And Jonathan, this is his name, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. It's corrupted to Manasseh, but the end is written in small letters so that we know that it's really Moses. And no one doubts it. No doubt that this man, Jonathan, who is this bad Levite who gets involved with this idol shrine, is the grandson of Moses. And he's coming from Bethlehem. And then this other Levite wasn't from Bethlehem, but he went there to get his wife, and he was journeying back from there to Gibeah. So Bethlehem's not a very good place. And then we get to the book of Ruth. Bethlehem is still not a very good place. Everybody who's coming out of Bethlehem is a problem. There is a famine in Bethlehem, and... You remember that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her sons, they leave and go to Moab. So Bethlehem is basically dead. There's no bread there. But something happens. There's a resurrection. We're not told about it. Because when they come back at the end of Ruth, the place is prospering. You have to notice that. It's very clear in case you don't. There was a famine. It came to pass in the days when judges governed. There was a famine in the land. And so a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah left the land and went to Moab. Well, we come back, and there's no famine going on. Things are so prosperous that there are gleaners everywhere. And there's so much to glean that Boaz can say, hey, just leave some extra stuff lying around for these gleaners and make sure Ruth gets some. There's abundance of food there in Bethlehem, which means house of bread really has become a house of bread now. So, there's a resurrection, and of course the book of Ruth ends by taking us down to David, showing us the genealogy of the king. In both of these cases, you have the same kind of story. They're both kind of foul places which threaten women. The women are suffering as a result of what happens here. Benjamin kills his mother as she gives birth to him. That's the start then we get to this Gibeah, we get this man who throws his wife out to be raped to death. We get to Bethlehem, well, the girl is from Bethlehem who gets thrown out. Beyond that, in the book of Ruth, Naomi comes back, she's barren, she says, I'm dead. She has to come back to life again. And she does through Ruth. So, Unhappy treatment of the woman, unhappy treatment of the bride by these kings is pointed to here. And I think part of it is a warning. Okay, you get to have kings, but kings can kill 
the bride if they're not careful, and they will, and it happens right away. Rachel, who's the mother, is killed by this kingly son of hers, Benjamin. So the promise was just made, kings will come from your loins, and then right away a son is born. Hence, escape the fact that Benjamin is kingly here, and of course, the first king of Israel, Saul, comes from Benjamin. But out of these situations of death come salvation. Saul is at least a first king, and he's a good king to start off with, then he becomes a bad king almost right away, but... David, who makes loads of mistakes too, and then eventually Jesus, they all come out of this situation of death. Just to conclude, the geography here, a place near Bethlehem, on the way to Bethlehem as you're traveling south, this is near Gibeah. This is where the Saul kings came from, and Bethlehem, which is stressed here, is where the David kings came from. We're all in this kings will come from you situation. There's going to have to be some type of death and resurrection, though, first, because the sons are bad and they won't be good kings unless the situations change. Another thing that I think a theme that starts up here is that Rachel, the first wife and mother of Israel, dies giving birth to Benjamin, so Israel must die after Jesus is born that the kingdom may go to the whole world. Compare the Gospels going to the whole world right after this event in the Joseph marriage. So, what happens in Genesis? The mother dies king is born, the gospel goes to the whole world. That's what happens. What happens in the story of Jesus? Well, Mary doesn't die giving birth to Jesus, but Mary is just the culmination of Israel. And Israel does have to die. Jesus tells them, unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. You Jews are going to have to be like me. You will have to die to your tradition being the mother of Christ, you have to die so that the gospel can go to the world. And some of them do. And you get this whole struggle in the epistles. Are you willing to die to everything that you used to be and stop being a Jew? Paul has to wrestle with this all the time because in the churches, you've got converts who were formerly Jews and converts who were formerly Gentiles. And the converts who were formerly Jews refuse to stop being Jews. They want to say, we're converted Jews. And this church has converted Jews and also Gentiles in it. Paul says, no, you're not converted Jews. You're not Jews at all. If you're converted, you're not a Jew. And a Gentile who's converted is not a Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile are abolished. There are no Gentiles today. That situation continues on down to AD 70, at which time, as we saw when we studied Revelation, God eliminated both Jews and Gentiles. Jews do not exist after AD 70. And Gentiles do not exist after 87. There's still people who call themselves these things, but they don't exist. Because God does not have that distinction in the world. The distinction is eliminated in 87. I'm not a Gentile. I never was. Nobody was. And there are no Jews. They are just people. But down to 1870, coming from the past, you still had Gentiles and Jews. But if you're converted, you stop being those things. And you become one new thing in Christ. Paul keeps insisting on that. So what he's saying is, if you're a Jew, if you're the mother of the Messiah, which is what Israel is, they are the mother of the Messiah, if you're the mother of the Messiah, that has to die. Just as Rachel died, and then the kingdom goes to the whole world, so Israel has to die. Now you can die a nice way, just say, okay, we stop being Israelites, we stop being Jews, we become Christians, we won't be Jews anymore. 
Those guys aren't Gentiles anymore. We're all one new man in Christ, so we die to the past. But if you don't do that, you come and burn your city down. One way or the other, Israel dies. And it's the son who does it. It's Benjamin who kills his mother here. If she hadn't gotten pregnant, if she gotten pregnant with a little girl instead of a mean little boy, whatever you want to say, it's this child who is responsible for, not consciously responsible, but it is a fact that she dies because she's giving birth to this child. He is the one who killed her. He's not morally culpable of that, but that's what happened. Jesus kills Israel by destroying them in AD 70. The son eliminates the mother. It can happen in a kind way as the mother converts. Jesus does that with his own mother Mary. She comes to him in John, says, I need wine. I know you can handle it. He says, what do I have to do with you? You have to stop being my mother. You have to die to being my mother. And she does. I mean, you don't find Mary going around trying to run Jesus' life for him after that. She could have. The statement in the scripture is, for this cause a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Jesus didn't get married. And so it would have been possible for Mary and Joseph, if he had still been alive, and we assume he's dead because he's not in the text, to say, well, you're still under our authority. You still live at home. You're not married. But she doesn't make that claim on him. She gives up her motherhood. So she doesn't have to be killed to get her out of the way. One way or the other, the mother has to step aside, stop being the mother. That's the same thing true when our kids are grown. We can't treat them as little kids anymore. The mother has to step aside. And that can happen in a variety of ways. But it's very interesting that with the birth of this king here, the mother dies. And at least in the typological way, when Jesus comes, the mother dies. Israel dies. And immediately after both of these events, we have this gospel going out to the entire world that is at least chronologically connected with that. The final preliminary observation I have here that I think worth some meditation is that Rachel delivers and dies not at Bethlehem but on the way there. We can contrast Mary who actually arrived at Bethlehem and gave birth to Jesus. In the Old Testament we are only on the way to Bethlehem. Now we've already done this by saying that on the way to Bethlehem we have the birth of Benjamin and King Saul and when we get to Bethlehem not on the way there anymore, we get to Bethlehem, we have the birth of King David. But in a larger way, you see, I think you could say that the whole Old Testament is just on the way. Whatever kings come, whatever things happen, we're not really there completely yet. We get there with Jesus, who is the greater David. One other preliminary observation is that Rachel's deadly labor recalls the statement in Genesis 3 that women will give birth to the Holy Seed through great travail. Her association with the mother of the Holy Seed contradicts those who want to see Rachel as a wicked person. As said so many times before, there's this interpretation of Genesis that tries to make everybody out to be as evil as possible without any foundation in the text. And Rachel is another one. don't know how far we'll get today, but I have heard about how Rachel, she's full of self-pity. One sermon I heard called her Mrs. Pity. Mrs. Self-Pity. And when she says, Ben Oni, son of my woe, and all she's doing is feeling sorry for herself because she's suffering and dying. Well, I guess if you want to interpret it that way, you can. But I don't think there's any sign to it. In fact, 
we will get to this in just a moment, doesn't mean son of my self-pity. And there's nothing here that indicates that Rachel is some type of person caught up in feeling sorry for herself. All of the perfectly understandable she was. There are plenty of people in heaven, and there are plenty of people in this room, who even though we're born again, there are times when we feel sorry for ourselves. None of us is perfect. But to try to read that Rachel is a rotten character because she is dying and feels bad is going a little bit far. But even that's not a valid interpretation. That's not what Ben Oni means. Rather, it means something much more interesting and frankly hopeful. Well, we've done verse 16. They departed from Bethel. There was a stretch of land to come before you get to Ephrath, which we're then told at the climax of this is, hey, this is Bethlehem. Rachel began to give birth and she had a very hard birth. So, here we are. Genesis 3, I will multiply your distress in childbearing when it comes to the important children, the holy seed. And this is the king, the king that's just been promised. At least he's certainly connected to it. It came to pass when her birthing was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid, for this is also a son for you. Well, now there's a specific reason why she says that, and it's recounted. Because Rachel had prayed for another son. And so when she says, this is also a son, she's saying, God has answered your prayer. This is not some big judgment on Rachel here. The word Joseph means, add to me another son. Genesis 30, 22 and 23. God kept Rachel in mind. God hearkened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and bore a son. She said, God has removed my reproach. So she called his name Yosef saying, may Yahweh Yosef add another son to me. So every time Joseph was around, Joseph's name was a prayer for a second son. And now, the midwife says, God has answered your prayer. You're also having a son. This is also a son. Thus, Rachel's fear is associated not only with fear for her life, but fear that God might not have heard her prayer for a son. The midwife says, don't be afraid. Now, let's examine that. Her birthing is hardest, and the midwife says, don't be afraid. Now, she could say, don't be afraid. It'll be okay. I've delivered a hundred babies before. Makes sense. But when she says, don't be afraid, you're having a son, how does that change anything? Whether it's a son or a daughter, you're dying. You're in tremendous pain, and you're afraid. So how does the fact that it's a son and not a daughter comfort her in her fear? If her fear is only fear of pain and suffering and death, then whether it's a son or a daughter doesn't matter. If her fear is only the fear of suffering and death, then whether it's a son or a daughter or a dog or a cat doesn't make any difference. The pain is still there. She's still dying. But if what she's afraid of is that God has not heard her prayer, her prayer for another son, then this is comforting. So what this tells us is, what Rachel was most concerned about was that God had not heard her prayer and that she was not going to have another son. She prayed for a second son. Her first son is dead. Joseph is dead. Remember, we only find this out later on, but several years before this happened, Isaac and Rebekah are shown the robe of many colors with blood all over it, and they're told 
that Joseph is dead, and that's all they know. So she has prayed for years to have a second son. Her first son is dead, as far as she knows, and she dies not knowing any different. Well, she finds out right away, of course, after she's dead. That's the nice thing about dying in this situation, I guess. You find out that your boy is still alive down in Egypt. But right now, she doesn't know that. And she's afraid God hasn't heard her prayer. She's afraid God has cast her off. Imagine you were in this situation, especially if you were a woman in the ancient world. I don't know how many modern women would have these types of feelings. Your sister has six sons and a daughter. And these midwives, they each have two children each, and you, who are the first wife, you're humiliated and you only have one son. So people are saying, hmm, I guess Rachel's kind of under a curse. God doesn't want her to have a lot of kids, and you begin to think that too. So you want to pray, God, please vindicate me. You know that I love you. Give me another son so that people don't say that I'm under a curse. Then your first son dies. Now what do you think? God hates me. I must be under a curse. I could only have one son, and now he's dead. That's what you think, isn't it? It would be hard not to think that. You could reason with yourself and say, yes, I know the promises. I know that we're called to suffer. I know this, that, and the other. But what would be in the back of your mind nagging at you all the time, especially in this society where children are so important to women, you'd be thinking, oh, gee, God is against me. He finally gave me one son, and now he's taken him away. He's dead. Everybody thinks I'm under a curse. I guess I am. Now she's pregnant again, so she's happy. But the question is, is it going to be a son or is it going to be a daughter? Because daughters are nice, but they don't count when you prayed for years for a son. And that's what she has been praying for for over 20 years, maybe 25 years since the birth of Joseph here. For 25 years she's been praying for another son. She is afraid, I think, I submit to that. Everything is implied here in this statement. Don't be afraid. This is a second son for you. That answers all this stuff that's earlier in the text. She's afraid that God really is against her. That God really is cursing her. The fact that she only had one child and then he died is a sign of rejection from God. But to hear that God has answered her prayer and that this is going to be a son, that is an encouragement. That's why she's told not to be afraid. She's not just afraid of the pain. Who wouldn't be? But she's mainly, because this is what the midwife says to her, she is mainly afraid that God has cut her off. And the fact that she's having a son is a sign that he hasn't. She doesn't need to be afraid. Verse 18. It came to pass as her life was slipping away because she was dying that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. That's what we got to talk about. Benoni, son of my affliction. This is said to be, oh, well, I'm suffering, I'm dying, this is so painful, I feel sorry for myself. That is not the background for it. There's specific background for this statement in chapter 30, verse 1, where Rachel says, give me children, if not, I will die. Rachel saw she could not bear children to Jacob. She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. Rachel would rather die than be barren. That's the statement. In a sense, that's the deal she made. I would rather die than continue to be barren. Give me children or I would die. If I can't have children, I'd rather die. Well, if you'd rather die than be barren, then you're willing to die to give birth. And that's exactly what happened. 
I'm not saying she made a rash vow because there's no vow here. She just comes to her husband and says, I can't stand this anymore. But the affliction in all of these passages, Rachel's affliction is her barrenness, and that has been the problem for her all along. That is the cross she was called upon to bear, humiliation of not being able to have children when everybody else was. And she says she would rather die than be barren, and she dies giving birth. And I think that's all it means. That God, in a sense, it's a positive name. God has answered my prayer. I said that I would rather die than be barren. I'm dying, but I'm not barren. This is the son of my affliction. And I willingly took this affliction upon myself so that I could have this son. She says, I was willing to die to have a son, and now here's the son who comes out of my death. And I don't think there's any implication of self-pity or all the rest of it that is implied here. And this is an appropriate name. Both of these names continue to be in use. His father calls him Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. Scholars suggest other possibilities, but usually they're liberals who are trying to look around paganism to find other possibilities for this name. There's no doubt that Benjamin means son of the right hand. We later on learn that Joseph is already dead as far as Jacob knows, so Benjamin, as son of the queen, is the just promised king, and the king sits at the right hand of the father. God has said Jacob had put Joseph in charge, and Joseph had had dreams saying, I'm going to be in charge, but now Joseph is dead. Joseph was the right hand. Joseph was the king to be. Joseph is dead. Now, Joseph's mother, who is the queen, the first wife, she has another son. We've just been promised kings. The king sits at the right hand of the father. This is exactly what this name means. It means Benjamin is now the king. And later on, you remember that Joseph treats Benjamin like a king when he comes to Egypt in order to see how his brothers will react. They react better that time than they did before. So Benjamin doesn't just mean that Jacob favored him. Again, you can be too psychological here. Maybe he did. He loved Rachel more. Maybe he loved Rachel's kids more. It's all possible. But this doesn't prove it. Because Jacob has just heard God say the kings will come from him. This is the king. It's appropriate to call him son of the right hand. Because that's what a king is. The kingly name. Might as well have called him king. Could have been called him Melech, king, or Malcolm in English. Could have called him Malcolm. Hey, Malcolm Israel, king. But they call him son of the right hand, which means king. So he's accepting what God has done. Doesn't mean I love him anymore. He's my favorite son. Uh, we find out later on there's a certain amount of that. After all, he's a little kid and the rest are grown. But can't psychologize it until we understand it. We can psychologize what's going on in here, and I've done a little bit of it with Rachel and what was in her mind, but only after we notice exactly what the text says and what it means. Here, son of my affliction and son of the right hand do not have intensely psychological meanings. That's not how people named their kids. The names that were given earlier were all prayers or had some theological meaning, and they do here as well. The two names are not contrasted. Now, the fox here says, 
She called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. But it does not say but in Hebrew. And if you've got that open and you have a pen, just change it to and. It's just the word and. Now, depending on the context, sometimes this and in the Bible can imply a contrast. But there's no evidence of it here. Mother called his name Benoni, and his father called his name Benjamin. That's all it says. If the context demands it, that could indicate a contrast. But it doesn't demand it here because we know that in the theology of Genesis and of the Bible, the seed of the travailing woman is the king. The woman travails to give birth to the Messiah, so the Messiah is Benoni, son of her travail. And the Messiah is also son of the right hand. Any biblical theology knows that the same person has both names. Jesus is son of the woman's travail. That's his name. You saw it in Revelation 12. The woman in the heavens, she is in travail to give birth to a son who will rule the nations. And that son who will rule the nations, that's his other name. Son of the right hand, ruler of the nations. Finally, a pillar is put up. In context, the pillar recalls the memorial pillar at Bethel, which signified a ladder to heaven. Jacob expresses his confidence that Rachel has gone to be with God, and that's why there's a pillar there. I think this is about the only time in the Bible that there is a pillar over a grave. I don't think we can go from there to say people put gravestones up the way we do today, and they may have, some cultures may have, but here in context the pillar is a ladder that reaches up to heaven, and I think this is his expression of his faith and confidence that his wife is now with God, having left him. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.